In this weekend episode, three segments from this week's Washington Journal program on C-SPAN. First, Natalia Bugayova of the Institute for the Study of War discusses the one-year mark of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Then former CBO director Keith Hall, now a distinguished visiting fellow at George Mason University's Mercatus Center, gives us a 101 on the federal budget. Plus, Jerry Poggi, an expert in environmental health and former member of the Chemical Safety Board, discusses the toxic train derailment in northeastern Ohio. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Now a discussion about the anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine with Natalia Bugayova of the Institute for the Study of War. If uh, this is a war that has taken place in phases, what phase are we in right now? Yeah, there are several key phases and milestones. Um, I actually would like to start by talking about a couple that were preceding February 24th, because Russia has been trying to control uh, Ukraine for years. Uh, first, by trying to manipulate and dominate Ukraine's political uh, domestic environment uh, in 2000s and 2013. Then Russia launched a limited military intervention in 2014. And for the subsequent eight years, uh, Russia tried to use that to essentially control Ukraine politically. Um, all those efforts have failed. Uh, and then Russia resorted to full-scale um, military intervention, military invasion uh, of Ukraine. We have uh, had several key phases. Uh, I would say the first one is when Russia had initiative on the ground from February of last year to about July. And in that phase, Ukraine has defeated initial Russian objectives in this war to invade and conquer Ukraine um, in, in a matter of few days. Ukraine has won the Battle of Kiev. It pushed Russia out from Kiev axis. It won the Battle of Kharkiv, and it forced Russia to redefine its operational objectives down to just focusing on uh, essentially eastern Ukraine. Uh, then Ukraine seized the initiative in about uh, summer, um, uh, mid-summer of last year and launched uh, several um, counteroffensive operations um, and successfully liberated thousands of square miles uh, of territory, most important, its people. Uh, Ukraine has been setting conditions for additional counteroffensive operations since. However, some of its momentum slowed uh, in part because actually Western military aid was uh, a step behind Ukraine's battlefield needs, uh, which is what allowed Russia to reinforce its lines um, and uh, shore up its offensive of Bakhmut as well as uh, in Luhansk region. And a couple of weeks ago, Russia launched uh, a major phase of its offensive in Luhansk region. Uh, that is progressing very slowly, and uh, that is, that's where we are today. You, ta- you talk about objectives. Uh, what defines winning and losing? Start f- with Russia right now. Yeah. Russia's objectives in Ukraine have been consistent for years, and uh, they've always extended just taking territory or just counting NATO or just uh, forcing Ukraine into neutrality. And they were certainly never about protecting Russian speakers, given how many thousands of um, Russian-speaking Ukrainians, Russian forces have killed or expelled or deported from Eastern Ukraine. So Russia's objective has always been to control Ukraine and to uh, actually eradicate Ukraine's statehood 
and its identity. So those maximalist objectives um, remain the same. We actually see no indication of Vladimir Putin uh, of changing them, despite the battlefield setbacks he's facing. And we assess that those objectives will likely outlive him by design. What defines winning and losing for Ukraine? If Russia ends up controlling any territory that it has taken uh, since a year ago, does that mean a loss for Ukraine in this war? Yeah, so what's at stake for Ukraine here is essentially it's, uh, it's Ukrainians' existence as a state. Uh, Russia keeping, preserving some of its gains in Ukraine territorial allows Russia to do several things. Um, and therefore, actually, territory matters, and it matters tremendously. Russia will likely use any territory that it keeps in Ukraine to stage future attacks, precisely because it is a tent hasn't changed. Um, Russia can advance much further if it starts from the lines that it currently controls compared to what it had in February 24th. So it would be any Russian military foothold in Ukraine. It's going to be a perpetual threat to Ukraine's uh, existence, uh, Ukraine's survival um, as a state. You mentioned Western aid. When it comes to U.S. aid to Ukraine specifically, what's been most important? Has it been a specific weapon system? Has it been just dollars in general? Has it been diplomatic efforts to, to unite the, the West. What do you think has been the most important piece of aid? I think military aid is certainly core, uh, but it's the full package because there are two centers of gravity in this war. One is Ukraine's will to fight. And the second is Western support of Ukraine's effort to fight. As long as both of those exist, Russia cannot achieve its objectives. Western military aid, including specific systems like, let's say, HIMARS, were absolutely essential to Ukraine's ability to liberate its people and its terrain. For example, liberation of Kherson city, which is a vital strategic uh, city from both perspective of Ukraine and Russia. Liberation of that city would not have been possible without uh, uh, essentially U.S. Uh, support and the HIMARS uh, system. But it's not about specific system. It's about the whole package. Uh, the next ask, the next package to ask for is, uh, is aircraft. What is the status of, of the air war over Ukraine right now? Yeah. So Russia is still, um, essentially, Russia doesn't have air superiority or dominance in Ukraine. And this has been one of the very important uh, distinctions of this war compared to many others in which Russia has been engaged in before. And um, Ukraine being able to preserve uh, its ability to control its uh, airspace and deny Russia's manned aircraft from freely operating in Ukraine has been crucial. And that's one of the reasons why... Uh, Russia has been de- uh, relying so much on unmanned aircraft, such as drones, and, and trying to get more of them uh, from Iran. I think about, as we look at the next phase of the offensive and uh, Western aid, there are two things that really matter. First, Russia's offensive in Ukraine right now is moving very slowly, and we assess it will likely culminate short of achieving uh, any significant gains. What that means is Ukraine will likely have another chance uh, will most certainly have another chance to go uh, and exploit Russian setbacks through its own counteroffensive. And uh, it's uh, important to make sure that when that time comes, Ukraine is fully resourced and positioned to take that uh, opportunity and exploit it to the fullest. Because it's in U.S. interest also, not just Ukraine's, that Ukraine liberates terrain and does it fast. We assess that they won't meet their objectives. How do you make that assessment? How do you see and watch this war? Yeah. Um, Russia's uh, essentially military campaign and offensive is extremely costly, and they've been uh, repeating several numbers uh, of mistakes throughout this war. One, throwing a lot of resources in pursuit of limited gains. 
It was in Mariupol, we've seen it in Serdanyevsk and Eastern Ukraine. It's the same with Bakhmut. And it's actually Russia's costly operation that depleted a lot of, and Ukraine's relentless defense that depleted a, Russia, a lot of Russia's capability. We do see uh, Russian efforts to try to regenerate its combat-capable power both in the short and long term, but uh, they're facing a lot of systematic uh, issues that cannot be fixed overnight. In fact, uh, fixing some of those issues means fixing not just 12 months of worse uh, mistakes, 20 years of cumulative mistakes that Vladimir Putin and uh, the way uh, he ruled Russia actually led to you know, corruption and erosion of Russian capability. So we see it on the ground as IW team is uh, relentlessly and daily observing from openly available information, openly available only information, um, various Russian military movements and how uh, the war essentially is um, shaping on the battlefield. What is that? Is that Twitter accounts? Is that uh, Instagram postings? How, how are you watching this? Yeah. So uh, IZW's uh, Russia team uh, and Russia and Ukraine research team, as well as other teams, have been developing uh, source lists for a number of years, right? Because we've been watching this, uh, and Russia is a global, global actor for a number of years. It's a very comprehensive, multi-source uh, package, including uh, social media, including uh, news outlets, including sources in Ukrainian language, in Russian language, uh, telegram channels, including of Russia's military bloggers. Uh, it's a very comprehensive effort, and we constantly revive and revise those sources to make sure that they're primed for performance. That was Natalia Bugayova, a Russian fellow at the Institute for the Study of War. Next, Jerry Poggi, an expert in environmental health and former member of the Chemical Safety Board on the toxic train derailment in northeastern Ohio. I read somewhere that there's 20 of the 150 uh, cars on that train were, were chemical cars, the ones we've seen, all of those photos and video, video of what types of chemicals were in that train. So happily, we've released at least a portion of the in, uh, manifest for the train, but the 38 rail cars that were most implicated in the crack up and the release they included uh, cars with chemicals like vinyl chloride, a rather potent carcinogen, one that has generated enormous amount of toxicological research, as well as concerns on how best to manage it. Uh, but also lesser known chemicals like ethyl hexyl acrylate, uh, ethyl, ethylene glycol monobutyl ether, not common words, I dare say more may have recognized vinyl chloride than recognized the others. And a similar suite of chemicals that can change the flow of the most toxic chemicals into the environment, into the air, into the water, and into the soil. So as a toxicologist, you worry not just about the individual toxicity, although that is of supreme concern, but also what does this mixture mean in terms of human exposures and exposures to pets and farm animals and the fish in the streams and any living creatures downstream from you, this terrible incident. You mentioned in our pre, our short pre-chat before we came on the air here, a term, you, your concern over what you call the downwinders of this of this spill, of this accident, and the controlled burn they had right. a after that. What are some of your concern about those people and, um, and, and the, the after effects of this, this spill? 
Well, through a lot of um, release of information about the incident, you know, I sit here in Vienna, Virginia, so I'm not immediately close to the poor community in East Palestine, but it's right on the border with Pennsylvania. And so when the incident began around 9 p.m. on February 3rd, there was a large release and a fire ensued. That fire burned from February 3rd to February 8th, so six days worth of open pit burning. And that open pit burning not only included the cars burning on themselves, but a decision to have a release burn because there was greater fear that um, there could be an explosive release of a vinyl chloride car. So that's the immediate fears for the community's exposure that generated much interest. And I dare say there were horrific photos and videos on all sorts of TV media about the clouds that emanated from that burn. That's something a toxicologist looks at and says, I wish I had samples of that cloud and samples closest mm. to the people in the environment as it burned. What would typically in that sort of situation with that controlled burn, would there be um, environmentalists, chemists, um, biologists on site as the burn was happening to, as you say, sample that that uh, smoke that was coming off that fire? Well, the Ohio EPA, which had the first responsibility to respond on behalf of the state of Ohio, was aided and abetted once the governor called in the federal EPA to build the sampling systems and networks. But we not only want to protect the people who might be exposed, but we have to ensure that we protect those first responders so they're not putting themselves in harm's way as they seek to protect the other innocent victims in this incident. Jerry Pochi is our guest. He is the founding member of a, a founding member of the Chemical Safety Board. He has his PhD in uh, biology and environmental health sciences from uh, New York University from NYU, and is also as part of that uh, CSB was on scene at a number of investigations into explosions and fires and chemical spills like this. Um, it, as, as, as an investigator, as someone who would show up on the scene like this, of an, an event like this, what are some of the first things that you would look at, Jerry? First things that I would be concerned about is not my job as an investigator. It's to ensure that the environmental safety response is being effectuated for benefit for the people who are closest to the disaster. We come in secondarily, but I don't think unimportantly to say, how did this happen? Why did it happen? What are the preconditions that made it much more likely to happen? And how could we understand those and issue recommendations on how to prevent it from ever occurring again? So I, I understand the challenges in the most immediate uh, incident. You really have to care for the people most at risk, ensure that they are evacuated if that's what's called for, but also ensure that they are informed as to what's happening and why. There have been too many toxic disasters where the community was unalerted to the nature of the disasters and some of them headed in 
on roadways into the harm's way. So we can build much better systems and we have to do that if we want to protect ourselves, our loved ones and our fellow citizens. Our supply chain, Jerry Poggi, I guess necessitates that we have to move things by these chemicals by, by rail. But as you look at it and based on your experience, what do you think the rail industry can do to better ensure the safety of these cars and prevent these types of uh, these chemical, chemical in particular, uh, derailments in the future? Well, clearly maintaining the system, maintaining every rail car, inspecting and ensuring that it is in fully functional operational state is essential. Making sure that you position your cargo appropriately. I mean, one of the few rail cars that was identified in the partial manifest of what was involved in the toxic event was a rail car full of semolina. Many of us will know that as the delicious basic ingredient in pasta. Mm. It's a material we could eat and we do eat. If there were 40 of these semolina cars between each of the rail cars full of the most toxic chemicals, we would have had a much lesser release. So I think that's first and foremost a serious question for the National Transportation Safety Board, who was on scene almost immediately and began their investigation. They are the most responsible, independent, investigative body in this incident. And later today, they're going to have a preliminary report out that will be of great interest to the people listening on this call and to me as well. That was Jerry Poggi, an expert in environmental health and former member of the Chemical Safety Board. Next, as lawmakers discuss raising the debt limit and federal spending, former CBO Director Keith Hall gives us a 101 on the federal budget and what can and cannot be cut. Uh, Let me ask you this. You've seen the big picture numbers when it comes to the national debt, $32 trillion. A lot of resources show that, including the debt clocks that we show sometimes here in the United States or on the program. Uh, Your predecessor said that, you know, more money is going to be added to that. Uh, Can you give from your perspective how we got here? Well, sure. Uh, the the number one cause, frankly, is simply we outspend our revenue every year. Uh, we have been outspending our revenue by you know 130 um, percent, and this is something that's been happening for the past 15 years in particular, ever since the Great Recession uh, in 2017. Literally, national debt was about five trillion dollars. All right, this year it's going to be $25 trillion. All that has been added to fight the Great Recession and now the pandemic. Um, so we, we've really just overspent our tax revenue by, by a tremendous amount. Uh, it's, it's somewhat of a change in our strategy on dealing with recessions. Used to be we would let the Federal Reserve do their thing. We would have the safety net unemployment insurance, et cetera, go on. And, and of course, tax revenue would go down when we hit a recession. Well, starting with the Great Recession, we also tried very hard to spend our way out of the recession. So we spent trillions of dollars for the Great Recession. We've now spent trillions of dollars um, for the pandemic recession. And the pattern is we're continuing to spend more. We're continuing to spend at this rate. 
Uh, a second problem is the level of debt has gotten very high. Uh, as I mentioned, we owe 25 trillion uh, to the public. We owe 32 trillion overall. Um, the interest on that debt is about $640 billion. So we're now paying more in debt than all of what we pay for Medicaid. And then last, I'll mention the trust funds, uh, Social Security, Medicare, uh, Highway Trust Fund, Disability Trust Fund. So far, these have actually not contributed to the debt. The funds have been sufficient, but the aging population is starting to make the taxes collected for those funds. For example, think of your payroll taxes that, that we all pay. That's starting to become less than the out, the outgo. So in other words, the level of the funds, while it has been rising for years, is now starting to fall. And within the next few years, those trust funds are going to start to go insolvent. They're not going to have enough money to pay benefits. So that hasn't been a problem, but that's an upcoming problem. But really, the big thing is we outspend our revenue by quite a lot. Um, this year, this upcoming year, we're going to spend $6.2 trillion dollars. And we're going to take in $4.8 trillion in tax. So we're borrowing $1.4 trillion in a year where we're, we, we don't have anything going on. We're not in a recession. We're not trying to work, we're pay, uh, spend our way out of some particular problem. Um, and it's just we're just borrowing way too much money. And it's going to continue going forward. That's, that's clear. We've heard on this program, I'm, I'm sure you've heard over the years, that when it comes to the blame Republicans will blame, will blame Democratic administrations and vice versa. Uh, when it comes to who's to blame party-wise, how would you see that? Uh, enough. There's enough blame for everybody. I, I would give a testimony to the budget, budget committee with Republicans and Democrats there. I talk about the state of the budget, which isn't very good. And afterwards, sometimes I would get uh, a Democrat coming down saying, you're right, uh, taxes aren't high enough. And then minutes later, I'd have a Republican come down and say, you're, uh, you're right, spending is too high. So they see the problem, but they have entirely different solutions. Uh, and it's been both parties, to be honest. It's, it's been uh, uh, Republicans and Democrats. They just don't have a, uh, a commitment, and they certainly just don't have uh, any sort of cooperation with each other on budget issues. Mr. Hall, uh, you've probably heard the debate going on about the debt ceiling and using that as some type of means to discuss spending issues. You've probably seen this strategy talked about over the years. What do you think about that as a strategy? Well, well, first of all, the, the debt ceiling was put in by Congress over 100 years ago in its effort to, to uh, maintain control of the purse, spring, the purse strings over the president. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a serious threat. You don't want to have the uh, uh, debt ceiling exceeded because you want to be able to pay all our bills. Um, the plus side of it is that it, it makes you focus on the budget. Um, and whatever you think of the debt ceiling debate, this is going to happen again. It's, it's, uh, we've had to increase the debt ceiling 80 times over the last 100 years. And it's because we keep borrowing money and the debt level keeps going up and we keep bumping that ceiling. So however it's resolved this time, for example, it's going to show up again in a year or two years, whenever we hit the ceiling again, but we're going to hit it. 
Uh, and we need to think about some long-term planning, or at least medium-term planning even, on, on how to slow the rise in debt. Uh, Mr. Hall there, just forgive the 101 nature of this uh, discussion, but uh, for our audience at home, there's two major categories, as we understand it, when it comes to spending, mandatory right. spending, when it includes some of those health programs, uh, including Medicare and Medicaid, Social Security, which you brought up, income security programs, uh, federal retirement programs and the like, and veterans programs as well. And then there's the difference between that and discretionary spending. We'll talk about discretionary spending in a second, but start with mandatory spending uh, as far as the larger discussion of how budgets are done and where we are we're at today. Talk about the, the impact of mandatory spending. Well, sure. Well, first of all, mandatory spending are instances where Congress and the president have passed laws that spend money, and they do it automatically. And it's called mandatory because people, for example, get their Social Security benefits because they're eligible for it. And so part, one of the issues about mandatory spending is there's no annual debate. It's just on automatic, and we spend uh, a lot of money in mandatory spending. Well, it's about, six, about 60%, two-thirds of the entire federal budget is on automatic. And so when we have this annual debate uh, and we have this annual budget, that Congress has to pass, the president submits a, a proposal, that's only on the non-mandatory part, the discretionary part. So we're, we're having trouble debating and coming to, to agreement on just a piece of the budget when the really big problem is the large part of the budget, the mandatory part. And that's the part that's really going to grow. Not only is it a big part of the budget, it's going to get actually bigger because we have an aging population in particular and healthcare costs are wrapped in there as well. And healthcare costs are, are rising very quickly. So the mandatory spending is actually the real problem. It's the elephant in the room. And the annual debate doesn't always have to talk about it at all. They just they're just talking about a, a, a piece of the budget. So that leads us to the other major category, discretionary spending. Uh, determined on that annual basis by Congress and the president. Uh, and also with defense spending, it says it represents about half of that discretionary spending and then other major spending, including homeland security, education, transportation, and the like. How does that factor in? Well, first of all, it, it's the sort of stuff that people think about when they think about gov what government does. Anything from infrastructure to, um, uh, to agriculture, all the things the government spends money on falls into this discretionary spending. Um, and, and as you say, there are two parts. There's defense spending, which is about half of the discretionary, and non-defense spending, which is the other half. And this is the part where every year Congress needs to write up bills to, to fund this. That's what discretionary spending is about. And they need to write up bills, and the president needs to sign them. So they have this back and forth on getting the bills written, and then the president has to sign it. The problem is the budget process is a complete mess, absolute mess. Um, this is actually the start of the congressional budget process right now. The uh, Congressional Budget Office, which is uh, an arm of, of, of Congress, has just put out this state of the budget report. And the next step is the president is going to submit his proposed budget. And we're going to start a process with deadlines and proce a process in place. And they'll miss every single deadline. Um, in fact, we've already missed the deadline for the president's submission of a budget. That was supposed to happen a couple of weeks ago. Um, so this discretionary budget is, is 
like I say, it's a small piece, but there's just no cooperation between parties. Whoever's in power controls it. And they really don't include the minority party. And if it flips, things look very different once it's flipped. That was former CBO director Keith Hall, now a distinguished visiting fellow at George Mason University Mercatus Center. Hear more interviews from C-SPAN's Washington Journal program on our website, cspan.org, on the C-SPAN Now app, or on C-SPAN television, live every morning from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern.